0: Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 27. Today's guest is Amy Forsyth. Amy began her career as an enlisted military journalist in the US Marine Corps and currently serves as a public affairs officer in the US Navy Reserve. Her career has included five combat deployments and several other overseas assignments. She is also the author of the book, Heroes Live Here, a tribute to Camp Pendleton Marines since 9-11. Steady, steady, nice and steady, light, Help cover!
1: I'm a steamroller, baby, I'm a steamroller, baby, just a rolling down my line. You better get out of my way
0: now. So you better get out of my way now. Or I roll all over you before I roll all over you. All right, so we can jump right into it. Amy, I'm so excited that we finally got to connect. And thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. So I always like to start from the very beginning of everyone's career and life. So where did you grow up?
1: Well, I was born and raised in Santa Rosa, California, which is just about an hour north of San Francisco. So original California girl, as they say, but Northern California is definitely much different than Southern California for for your audience out there. Um, Think more of like Oregon and Washington in the Northwest than San Diego or L.A., but uh, third generation from Sonoma County, which some people may know as being the wine country of California. And so um, just a really great place to be from and very proud to um, be from that region. There's a lot of, you know, the technology and the, and the environmental aspect of it is just a great place to be from.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I'm in Victoria, Canada right now. So very West Coast, Pacific Northwest feel pretty much the same as the. Oregon, Washington area. What were your interests during childhood?
1: Well, so I grew up with very athletic parents, and so I pretty much fell in with what they were doing, either hiking, playing tennis, running races. So I I really love being outdoors. I ended up playing tennis uh, through school and through high school and uh, in tournaments, and so that was kind of my sport. So I feel like little did I know at that time that playing organized sports would lend to going into the military, but they do say there's a direct correlation to some success if you're on a team sport or playing any athletics, organized sports, that it does help in some way. So I played softball as a kid and um, sort of in a tomboyish way, but uh, back then there were no girls playing soccer or softball, some playing volleyball, a little bit playing tennis. And so those were kind of my sports and dabbled in the... um, uh, golf a little bit and, and grew up kind of playing those now still as an adult. So um, the,
0: those were my my interests, so to speak. And so did you have any military members in your family?
1: Well, actually, my grandparents were in the military, you know, of course, during World War Two, that era, my grandfather was in the Marine Corps, my Grandmother was an Army nurse, and they were deployed overseas to Guam and Saipan and, and f- fought in those battles And my, while well, my grandmother tended to the wounded and the dying. And that's where they met, actually, on the island of Guam in uh, just before the war was over. And then World War II ended. They came home, linked back up. And ended up getting married and then moving out west, making that trek from Iowa, Montana over to California, Northern California. And that's where they settled. Yeah, I grew up hearing their stories and it just sounded so amazing. These, they had lifelong friends and the service and the patriotism that they displayed. It really, um, it rubbed off on me. And that's, I knew from an early age because of their service and stories that that's what I wanted to follow.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm always so curious about that because I didn't have that growing up and I didn't really know a lot about the military at all. I mean, I don't remember any recruiters or anything coming to talk at our school. So um, it's always sort of interesting for me to hear these people who grew up and knew for an ear- from an early age that they that's what they wanted to do.
1: You know, and it had it not been for their stories, I might not have ever known that much about the military because recruiters were not authorized to come on to my high school campus and I didn't really have any other contacts that were in the military. Um, So without their stories, I really had to seek out and find a recruiter who would talk to me even. And uh, because a lot of times they did it back then, they weren't recruiting women or they just didn't make an effort because of how hard they had to work to get Women to join the join the Marine Corps, at least. And this was in the late 80s, early 90s for me. So things have changed a little bit now. But um, it's always a constant steady drumbeat of stories and trying to, you know, reach all people wherever they may be.
0: Mm -hmm. It's so interesting now because of the internet. And, you know, we can go online and look at videos of basic training or whatever courses and occupations people want to do. And even on Instagram, I've noticed recruiters making Instagram pages to reach out to people to recruit them.
1: It definitely has changed the game for them and in a good way because they can reach people in a more direct manner than having to cruise the malls and beg for access to go onto high school campuses. And I went to an all girls Catholic school in high school. So, of course, there were like no, re- no military recruiters. Uh, they wanted everyone to go to college first. Obviously, we had a couple of girls that ended up going to the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, but those were in the early days. And that was kind of a different game for them. It was very just years, just a couple years after they even started letting women attend the Naval Academy. We had a couple of women from my high school go, but that was much different than en- enlisting into the Marine
0: Corps. So did you know that you wanted the Marine Corps? And then how did you decide which occupation within the Marine Corps you wanted to do?
1: I did. I definitely was had my heart set on the Marine Corps. I didn't even talk to any other recruiters. The Marine Corps was where it was at for me, the hardest, I would say, for the U.S. services and the most challenging and just the coolest people, right, the uniforms, the mission, the mindset, everything was all there for me. And so um, I knew, though, I wanted to use my skills. It was kind of good and bad because the Marine Corps for women at the time was very limited. You couldn't do, you could only probably do about 20% of whatever they were offering, like administration or maybe a mechanic of some kind, but no combat infantry, no aviation combat jobs were available. But they did have this one career field called combat correspondent where women were allowed to join. And I said, that is for me. I was always interested in media and journalism, yearbook, high school staff and telling stories. And so that's exactly what I wanted. And luckily, there was an opening and I had to take a couple like English diagnostic tests and typing tests and things. And so uh, the slots were very few and far between, but my recruiter managed to get me one. And so it was such a blessing to be in that career field from day one.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what did the training look like to become a combat correspondent?
1: Well, we all go through the same school, what we call the schoolhouse. It's called the Defense Information School, and it's located now at Fort Meade, Maryland. And it's where all the services go together to learn journalism, public affairs, community relations, and and now digital media creation. And so at the time, though, I went to Fort uh, Benjamin Harrison in Indiana. and But it's basically a pipeline. Once you uh, graduate from boot camp and recruit training, then you go to what we call DINFOs, it's short for the Defense Information School, and go through the training pipeline. And I was there my initial time about eight months or so. So I went through very intensive journalism, print, broadcast, radio training, and second to none, really, it rivals any journalism school, college out there. And um, it was just a great time to learn that uh, craft, really.
0: And so since I'm Canadian, I'm not overly familiar with the U.S. and the military there. So is this to correspond within the military or would this be for correspondence with outside news agencies?
1: Well, pipeline training for the military would be to go to your first duty station and then um, do reporting within the military. So we have this uh, network, media network called... Um, defense media activity. And then we have like radio stations and TV stations called uh, American Forces Network. And so basically, you would go on to your duty stations and write for the local paper, like the military paper. And now it's most papers have gone away. And then they just take photos and create videos and do digital content creation for your local base or station. And so all the students, military students, go through this um, training pipeline. And so I've been lucky enough to actually be an instructor there on two separate occasions, but I've been back for follow-on training. And so but many people, once they graduate there and then go in the military and get out of the military, they can land jobs in media, and some have gone on to be – Uh, broadcast anchors, and work in the highest levels of of media. So we kind of have a claim to fame that produces great military journalists who then go on to work in civilian media as well. And so we just have a great legacy of training to a very high standard. So anyone could literally walk out of the military and land a job at any uh, media market because they already know the standards and the tools used in civilian media.
0: Right. Yeah, it sounds like such an interesting job. So how many deployments have you done with that?
1: Well, luckily, I kind of cut this epic wave of deployments and opportunities. So I joined in 1993. And granted, I was 22 when I joined the Marines. So my parents, they were like, just hold off before you join the Marines after you graduate high school. Try to go to college if you can. If you really want to join the Marines, then join the Marines. So I was 22, and that's considered a little bit on the older side for, for U.S. anyway. So um, my first duty station, though, I, after I graduated DINFOs, I went on to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which was a very then considered a very remote, uh, exclusive duty station because of just how – um, isolating it is because there weren't flights back and forth from the state. So it was just right off the shores of Florida by 90 miles but the mission was so important back then in 1994 for uh, so I consider that a deployment. That was a one-year tour. I didn't leave the island, uh, very focused on the mission. We had a lot of things going on at that time. For some of your audience, you may remember, in 1994-95, we had a mass exodus of Cubans and Haitian migrants who tried to come to the United States, and they were lost at sea, and we picked the Coast Guard picked them up at sea and brought them to our base, we had a tent city of 70,000 people on a base that was designed for 4,000. So it turned into a joint task force very fast with very dangerous conditions. Uh, so I consider that kind of my first entry into real world operations with uh, a lot of high level visitors and media interests because of the policy and things like that. So um, from there, I uh, was stationed at Camp Pendleton, which is a large Marine Corps base near San Diego, California. And from there, did uh, a lot of media engagement, community relations, working for the base TV station, base newspaper. And then after eight years of active duty, I decided to get off active duty and, and uh, go back to college, actually, and but stayed in the reserves. I loved the Marine Corps. I didn't want to leave the Marine Corps. I just needed to, wanted to finish my college and kind of see where it took me. I was working um, at the the base TV station and running that. And then when I left active duty, I worked at the local TV station um, in Oceanside, California, where I reported on military. And so that was a great way to kind of bridge the gap while I was going uh, through to get my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's degree. I thought I was going to be the next Barbara Walters, right? I was going to be the next TV reporter. Um, Big plans to go be a big time reporter. However, 9-11 happened, and then it changed the trajectory of my career, and I found myself getting mobilized right away to go to Afghanistan for the very first time. And at this time, the Iraq War hadn't even kicked off. And so um, I learned a lot on that deployment. then uh, subsequent deployments, I went to, I spent two years in Iraq, two separate tours in Iraq, and then three tours in Afghanistan uh, through the, through the 20 years that we were there, um, 2003, 2013, and then again in 2018. And so I got to see the progress of how things were going, um, in in Afghanistan. So, and then a bunch of other mini deployments all around the world and, uh, tours in places like Romania, Poland, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Palau, Singapore, uh, and a few others. Uh, and so, uh, Niger and uh, Africa. So, I've just had such an amazing, epic wave of opportunities to um, tell the story and showcase the military that uh, is doing partnered training and really help share that with the next generation. Really, the, why we're telling these stories is to um, help recruiting efforts and make sure that you know, we're, we're showcasing the best of what the military has to offer.
0: Yeah, I was reading your biography there and all of the different countries that you've been to, and it just sounded so amazing. I mean, I haven't been to that many, but that's one of the things that I love to do is just travel with work and work with the partner nations and do training with them and just see a completely different way of life. And I find their military always has different ways of doing things. And it's interesting to see the things we have in common and then the other things that are completely different.
1: Isn't it great to really model for them? And then in doing so, we get to learn, too. But I think a lot of these countries, they look to the United States and, and, and Canada and the UK, Germany as being leaders in, you know, organization, the uh, the NCO core, and how we integrate women into our ranks, uh, especially into senior levels. And if they can see it, they can be it. And so that's why I love we do these partnered missions to, you know, learn from each other. But really, we want to bring them along. And, and so I've just been a, a part of that. It's just been amazing. So um, you can't pay And any amount of money to get those kind of experiences. Meanwhile, the military is paying me I I, sometimes I have to say pinch me because I can't believe I get to go do these incredible missions. And so these multiple deployments, whether it was combat operations, or these other missions, these partner training missions have really shaped how how I see the world and really get to experience other cultures. It's been great for me. Yeah, it's been just wonderful. I would have never in a million years been able to do that, obviously, uh, on my by myself.
0: Right. And so going back to Afghanistan and Iraq, what would a day in the life of a combat correspondent look like? I mean, I, I'm sure that a lot of days are are very different from one day to another. But what would be sort of your main task that you would be doing while you were there?
1: Well, a lot of my mission was to uh, have my camera always with me and partner with the operating forces to go out on a mission, whether it was a foot patrol, a mountain patrol, a key leader engagement, to go out and take pictures, take video, get interviews, and then write the stories, get it published, upload video for the media actually, because at certain times, the media, the civilian media, either was too dangerous or they weren't able to get to where I was with this exclusive access. And so we would upload videos and photos so that they could grab it and use it into their reporting. And so um, I felt very privileged to be able to tell the story of what we were doing there. And then I would see it on you know, our local newscasts, the ABC, our international news, even our local or na- na- nationwide news, they say, that's my photo, that's my video. So um, just staying in step with those combat forces or those key leader engagements to document it, one, for historical purposes, two, because in case there was anything that happened, we would have a uh, reference to it, like for investigations or for damage, uh, battle damage assessments. So a lot of uh, thousands of photos, hundreds and hundreds of interviews to document everything, um, but no two days were ever the same. And so sometimes it might be me documenting it, or I would be supervising troops who were going out with the out on patrol and so supporting them with making sure that they have the information to be at the right, uh, link up spot, making sure they have everything they need and then helping them process videos, audio imagery, and then pushing it out, getting it uh, released, cleared for release. Um, and so that takes, you know, a team of people to get imagery and video, um, reviewed and approved for release at, say, from the Pentagon. So talking to the Pentagon daily about imagery that was uh, cleared for release was you know, also part of my job. And then another part of my job was to coordinate with actual media, uh, civilian media, who wanted to go out with the front line. So pairing them up with the right partners and the right mission to get what they want. If they have a special request that they want to go out on a patrol, a foot patrol that would engage with locals, let's say in Afghanistan. So finding the right mission and having the right date time link up was a part of my job as well. And then making sure that they, got back to the camp safely and then that they were on their way and then monitoring the media for whatever it, it reports that they were, and then making sure those are included into um, a larger summary or a brief so that the commanders can review and know that our efforts were worth it. And then of course, if they interviewed anyone to make sure that they get the final products and showing them how they, um, appeared on camera or here's the report and kind of make a determination. Was it, was it worth it? Or are these the things that we want to do by showcasing our efforts here? Uh, So, uh, another aspect is especially in 2008 and 2006, where I had a satellite dish where I could go live with any media. And so I would often do link ups every night with service members uh, that I would identify as being key spokespeople. And then I would contact their local news media. If someone was from Houston, Texas, I would start calling the Houston, Texas uh, local channels and say, Hey, do you want to do a a link up? I've got Sergeant John Smith and he's ready to talk about his experiences here in Iraq. And then they would say, yes. And so I coordinate the uh, satellite links and do media interviews live with the station. So that was a great opportunity to showcase just what our troops were doing. So a lot of different things, a lot of behind the scenes work on uh, during combat operations, for sure.
0: Yeah. And I guess in the early years, definitely, it probably would have been so different. We don't have the kind of connectivity that we would have today. And you know, where you can just sort of have a laptop and fire it up and send videos off.
1: That's right. I mean, these were some early days where internet was not even existing, uh, for much and it would not always work or it'd be cut off. And so you felt very isolated. So trying to get the satellite to connect and on the phone and really running a back end, uh, TV station. Really, to do satellite uplinks um, was really a challenge, but one of my most favorite memories, really, from those hard, I'll call those the hard years of uh, before technology got really easy.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what was your most memorable moment on deployment?
1: Boy, there's been so many mem- memories, good and bad, um, because of the, the tragedy really of losing so many fellow Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen, um, that we were close to, that we knew, we saw every day, uh, reading the casualty lists, um, walking by the, uh, surgical tent every day, knowing that there was, um, you know, work going on there and the call for blood, uh, every day. Uh, you know, some of these things I wouldn't remember if I didn't have photos to remind me. So a lot of it's been probably blocked out. Um, but a lot of it is, it's kind of stored deep down and, um, talking about it's great. And I know there's a lot of people, soldiers and Marines who, you know, it's they're, they're far from Iraq and Afghanistan, but they're still sort of in their head. They're still sort of there, you know. Um, but I would have to say, if I had to pick one particular memory, um, well, you know, I just can't pick one. But th- uh, that feeling of when you're on the flight home, your wheel's up, and you know you're going to... Uh, hit the ground and, and come home. It's just like that exuberant feeling of returning home after sort of a, a daydream or a uh, sort of a, a strange time warp because everybody else moves on, but you've kind of stayed in that same frame. But um, so many great memories, uh, great and, and, and sad, but those all shape people. And it really becomes part of you. And you can appreciate and be grateful for all the great things that we have here in, in the States and at home. And um, my say, I have a saying, sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. And so I had a lot of wins and a lot of successes by helping tell the story of what we were doing there. And then what we didn't win and those hardships and those uh, missed connections and um, snafus, if you will, uh, you learn. And so I learned a lot. And without those deployments and those hard times, I wouldn't have learned anything. And so it's just been really such an epic. Wave and uh, February 2023 marks 30 years for me uh, on active duty and in the reserves, and so. But I'm still serving in the Navy reserves as a public affairs officer. So I'll push it to the limits and uh, ride it till the wheels come off. And I'm I'm so grateful to be able to do that.
0: I'm uh, I'm about halfway. So June would June will mark 15 years for me, and um, I'm sort of you know thinking in a few years maybe. Uh, trying to become a public affairs officer because I do like, you know, I do recognize the importance of telling stories, and I like that aspect. Um, but we'll we'll see, we'll see what happens.
1: Oh that's fantastic. And I've worked with Canadian public affairs officers and public affairs teams and they're so great and just so on the ball and you know we have so much in common and it's always great to work with other countries where everyone is sort of rowing together. But it is one of the best jobs if not the best job and I'm and I'm probably biased but You get to meet so many people and tell the story and be the cheerleader for people and really bring some joy to service members, but not just service members, but to their families, because here's one story I'll share with you. A couple years ago, someone saw me and they said, hey, you were that girl, you did a story on me in the base paper. And I said, wow, that was a long time ago. Yes, I did the story. And he said, my mom Clip the story out of the magazine or the newspaper and put it on the refrigerator. I was like, that's crazy. And he's like, it's still on the refrigerator 10, 12 years later. And he'd already been retired for several years. And he says, I can't thank you enough for that because my parents are so proud. And I said, exactly. And we're all so proud of you. And people can become their hometown hero. And so when you get stories like that, I just
0: um it melts my heart you know to know that parents appreciate what we do while you were over there did you ever encounter any resistance or any issues being a woman like from the troops or from the locals that you had to interact with
1: you know i can't really recall any instance where someone said you're not invited to this meeting you can't be here who do you think you are or a no? And I don't take no for an answer, but um, they're a little hesitant to let me go out on like foot patrol or a mountain patrol occasionally. And those, especially those very dangerous missions in a Ram- places like Ramadi and Fallujah, Iraq. But they said, come on out. If you want to, you can. And I did. And so, um, no, no resistance whatsoever. And I, I even did a later deployment assigned to a special operations task force, a SODIF, run by the 75th Ranger Regiment, which is a very elite unit under the Joint Special Operations Command. And not only did they not, uh, say anything or act differently, they said, we're glad you're here. Let's get to work. And so that's the biggest compliment I think that anyone can, can give give you is, we don't care what you look like, what your gender is, where you come from. They just say, we're glad you're here. Let's, let's get started. And so, um, that was just a wonderful, you know, experience to know that through the decades that, um, you know, those early years are a little, a little different in those late eighties, early nineties. Uh, but in the past 15, 20 years, No, people have been very open. And they say, if you signed up, uh, it's time to kid up and go forward and do your thing. And we trust you.
0: And so that moves into my next question perfectly. So I read in one of your interviews that you said, you found that you thrive in dangerous situations. And were you always this way? And how did you discover this?
1: Well, I kind of get bored easily, I think. So the the more you deploy, and the more you enjoy that sort of lifestyle, and you know that you know how it feels right to go forward. And once you stop doing it, you kind of get itchy to go somewhere You're like what's my next mission, I want to go forward. And if there's a fight or an operation or a mission, it's still going on. I always found myself called to go back. So um, for example, in Afghanistan, 2003. Uh, 15 years later, I found myself back in the very same place because it was just more of a calling. And so, if there's if there's a mission or like a humanitarian crisis, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say I'll go. I'll I want to go because once you get not used to doing the daily routine every day, it's it becomes exciting and thrilling and makes life worth living if you get to be a part of the solution and helping people what good of all this experience to have, to not be able to like implement it and share it and, and, and thrive in that kind of environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, my, my biggest regret with the military was that I didn't join earlier and just because I didn't know, but I just wasn't suited to sort of the traditional, jobs um where you just kind of do the same thing day in and day out. I just like you, I get bored easily. I want to do so many different things. Um and the military was really such a perfect fit for me, but I just, you know, I didn't know that. So and I guess that's part of one of the reasons why I started this podcast so that others can potentially listen to it and see all of these different opportunities that are available.
1: Absolutely. You know, um it's a, always what we call a steady drumbeat of information because there's the next generation who are coming up behind. And so for me at my age, and, you know, I'm just always looking in the rearview mirror, like, who can I bring up? Who can I bring along? And if they know, if they can see it, they can be it. And so it's just a, a transition. Maybe it's time for me to slow down a little bit and uh, look behind me and bring them along. And so, um, but for women like you who are in the in the thick of it right now, doing it and showing showing up and s- stepping off into it and really making a big difference where you're at is is so important. And, um, you know, one thing I did notice, though, the shift in the past 20 years, especially with combat operations um, after 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan, at least in the U.S. military, is that when men saw women, kid up, step off and go into harm's way and actually be killed or injured, that really changed the dynamic for the U.S. military and maybe across the board and, you know, Canada, U.K., especially because they've also had um, casualties and injuries for for men and women, is that when you see other people doing that and say, I'm not just here for the paycheck, I'm here to do the work and I will – risk everything just like you. So I think that's really changed a lot of people's, um, it has opened their eyes a lot. And I've seen quite a difference in just the way people think and act towards, towards women, especially, you know, this generation coming up too. It's been a whole game changer. Unfortunate for those women who were killed or injured, of course. Um, But if you're I think that that has gotten the attention of senior leaders and and other men, especially, hey, if you're willing to do the job and and go in harm's way, you're on my team regardless. And and that's been really uh, a shift.
0: Mm, Yeah. So Canada, um, since 1989, women were allowed in all trades in the military, except for actually the last one was to be on submarines, which didn't happen until 2002. But in Afghanistan, I mean, we had women who were in the infantry and artillery and all these different combat arms so the one the first woman to be killed in combat in afghanistan um the first canadian woman was captain nicola goddard and i think that like you said sort of changed everyone's perspective and sort of hit a little closer to home but there were many women that were serving in these combat arms roles and i mean for the men working with them it was just normal for these canadian men like okay yes we have the our infantry officer is a woman. Like, I, I think it was a bit more normal than, you know, the Americans who just more recently allowed that to happen.
1: Right. Uh, we're following suit of some of our partners and we see that it works and it, you know, even places like Sweden and the UK, you know, we're, we're kind of behind the power curve when it comes to that. Um, but, the combat operations have proved that not only women can serve, but they can serve well and in, in all capacities, whether it's, a uh, in aviation as fighter pilots or, um, in tanks or, you know, in combat, uh, other combat arms roles. So yes, it's, uh, risking, just risking it all shows that we're in it, um, for all the right reasons. And, you know, it's, it's, Um, it's good to see that change has come. So West side.
0: Yeah, definitely. And can you tell me about major Megan McClung?
1: Well, sure. And, you know, our discussion about that is that, um, Megan McClung was a colleague of mine, a fellow Marine. She was a public affairs officer who I had worked with through the years and we crossed paths many times, but we deployed together in 2006. And many people may know the name Megan McClung. Um, She was a Naval Academy graduate, a triathlete, one of these Uber runner girls and uh, super gung-ho. We say gung-ho motivated, bright red hair just a firecracker, um, personality wise, and she was a public affairs officer. And tragically, she was killed in Iraq in 2006, um, from an IED blast, while her and uh, other soldiers were escorting media. And, you know, as we as we talked about when when she was killed, when Megan was killed, and I love telling the story, because I like to keep her legacy alive. And for people who don't know, but Um, that really got people's attention, because she was the first female officer, Marine Corps officer to be killed. And so um, people were really taken aback by that and realized that, okay, uh, this is real. Um, Her and two other soldiers actually in the vehicle were killed alongside her. And so um, with her death has come a lot of enlightenment and to that point, that if she's willing to kid up, step off and and go serve in one of the toughest dirts in Iraq and Ramadi dangerous time and place to be in, then um women have the right to be there, and no one's gonna say otherwise, but tragically, she was killed, and so there's been a lot of legacy um memories of her and people who want to follow in her footsteps just that bravery and her her willingness to serve so she was a reservist actually she volunteered for a mobilization to Iraq and so she didn't have to be there by any means she wasn't ordered there she she wanted to be a part of that and she was really good working with our with our media to get the story across and um a lot of people knew who she was cuz they'd see her running everywhere and just having that um career path being a naval academy graduate working as a public affairs officer um just a real tragic loss, uh, along with all the other losses, but worked with her very closely. And so by honoring her in certain memorials, or there's some scholarships and awards in her name is just keeping that alive if people don't know. And oftentimes, it's men who are awarded these medals, and they're heroes, and they died tragically in combat. But if you asked anyone, name one woman who was killed in in Iraq or Afghanistan on the U.S. side, we may not even. No one could probably come up with a name because they're the names aren't repeated very often because they're sort of off, often forgotten about. And I think there's been 130, maybe 140 women killed between the two countries. But I bet you because it's not covered very frequently it would be hard to recall a name as opposed to some other more noteworthy or names that get repeated a lot.
0: Yeah, then, I mean, you mentioned keeping that legacy alive and I'm Canadian, but that was one of the names that I've constantly seen. And, you know, just sort of the various military pages and articles, you know, I've read about her. And then also one of the other ones was Chief Shannon Kent, who I, I read about as well. And I'm like, oh, these stories, they need to get out there. People need to know about these women, which I don't I don't think they do. So I'm hopefully I will help tell those stories. Oh, that's wonderful.
1: Yes. Uh, Just showing that men and women, patriotic men and women are called to serve and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, you know, the operations in Syria with uh, Chief Shannon Kent You know, people are in dangerous situations while Megan wasn't on the front lines on a foot patrol going door to door looking for insurgents. She was just doing her job by riding in a vehicle to the government center to pick up media and, and, um, you know, just being in that dangerous situation, knowing how dangerous it, it is but still going anyways, and facing that fear of like, this could be it, you know, that's just the asymmetrical, there were no front lines, everyone was at risk, no one was safe, even lying in your rack in a tent on the camp, you're not safe, because we had incoming mortars, you know, very often. So anyone was at risk. And so um, there is no more combat operation line, front lines, that sort of thing in, in that war. And so, um, it just really changed people's minds. And so I've stayed connected with her family, her mom and her brother. And I think they cherish that because they know that, uh, myself and a few others were the last people to, you know, serve with her and, um, really it, I, say her name and speak her name and share her story with others and so it's been great to be able to stay connected with them and keep that memory of her alive for them
0: yeah even like what you mentioned about that risk and and everyone's at risk even though now canada is not in um an active conflict but we've had a lot of deaths in the past couple of years just from training accidents Or, you know, we had a really, really terrible helicopter crash, one of our ships that was deployed to Europe. So it's any time in the military, even if you're not deployed, there's always risks. Absolutely. There's
1: always risk on ship. It's so dangerous being on ship and aviation, even on a a firing line, you know, a training mission, a rollover vehicle accidents, and it happens all the time. And so it's very dangerous. And, um, you know, more and more women Um, are serving and serving
0: with great distinction. And so it often gets overlooked. And so what made you make the switch from the Marine Corps to the Navy? Well,
1: I had served in the Marine Corps for about 18 years, and I'd already done all these missions and combat deployments. And I had finished my bachelor's degree and already had finished my master's degree. And so I was working for this colonel, public affairs officer, who said, Hey, Amy, you should consider this program the navy has this direct commission officer program he's like because the chance of you getting promoted or or are, are you know hard in the reserves and you know it was uh kind of maxim maxed out on service limitations i couldn't really go much further in time and and rank and so i said i love the marine corps there's no way i would switch And he's like look just just do some research, look at it, consider it. So I put in an application, I got selected, and uh, I that I can continue serving, and I have absolutely no regrets. I love the Navy opportunities and the people that I work with. It's completely different. It recharged my batteries, and it really offered up opportunities that were not, um, you know, allowed into the offered in the Marine Corps. Uh, but in my head and in my heart, I'm still in the Marines, right? So I, I grew up kind of uh my uh, 18 years of my adult life in the Marine Corps, active in reserve. And so in my mind, I'm still in the Marines in my heart. But... Uh, my operation and my mission is in the Navy. And so, but in the U.S., we say we're all on the same team. It doesn't really matter what uniform you're wearing. It's still the mission that needs to get accomplished. And we're all kind of doing the same thing. So uh, I'm so grateful to be able to continue to serve and I have about three more years left in the reserves, and I'm I'm maximizing that by being assigned to a special operations command unit located in Stuttgart, Germany. And so that was just going to be a great way to finish out my career, make an impact on others, and maximize what I can uh, with the time that I have left.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. And so what's the most important lesson that you've learned in all of your years of being a combat correspondent and doing journalism?
1: Well, I've, I really have um, been able to maximize, I think, my own potential. But the lesson I've learned really is that life is like a camera. And it's just focus on what's important, capture the good times and develop from the negatives. And if things don't work out, take another shot. So uh really analogy for um all the photography and the videos that I produced is that um I'll always have a camera in my hand to document what's going on and share the courage is what we say share the courage it takes to wear a uniform share the courage it takes to be a part of the military and share the courage it would take to die for your country if you had to and Every time I do an interview or set out for a story, I'm always looking for that and I end I end up finding it in these young Americans and young service members that I interview is that they come from all parts of the country, even outside the country. We have a lot of immigrants that join our military and want to serve and pledge allegiance to the U.S. And every time it's from the most truest form of patriotism and and selfless service. And so if I've learned anything, it's uh, looking for the good in people, you will find it. And I just couldn't ask for a better way to serve. Um, So when you look back at 30 years, and you at 15, and you say, wow, 15 years goes by so fast, in a blink of an eye, just yesterday, I feel like I was you know, and camp, I can remember distinctly. And so where's the time go and asking yourselves, how do you want to spend that time? Do I want to spend it working? You say working, I truly feel like I've never really worked a day in my life because I get the opportunity to share stories and I would do it for free if they let me, but they, they pay me for it. So um, I would think that just uh, deciding that service is for you and, people who transition in the civilian and the private sector i love the i love it i love seeing veterans succeed and using their service as a stepping stone and their story is so important and more important to share with the next generation because we always have to create new opportunities for Americans to serve our country. And so no better way to do that than tell the stories of veterans, and those success stories that build on each other. And so those lessons for me really resonate. And I get to tell that story and be the go between to share um, the stories of service and and help people along the way.
0: And so speaking of stories, I can see on the shelf behind you, tell me about your new book and what inspired you to write it?
1: Well, the book is called Heroes Live Here, a tribute to Camp Pendleton Marines since 9-11. And this is really just a collaborative work of art. It started as a passion project where I'm I'm here located at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton near Oceanside, California. It's a beautiful beachside town just north of San Diego. And I came back here about two, two years ago, two and a half years ago after... Sir, serving and living on the island of Guam for five years, but Camp Pendleton is where I was stationed for many years uh, coming up through the ranks and deployed out of here many times, and I came back and noticed that they had so many war tributes and memorials to those that were fallen all throughout the base. It's a sprawling base, um, huge swath of land, 125,000 square acres with about 40,000 people stationed here with their families, but there was many tributes. And I thought, you know, through the years, we've lost so many people. And in my research, I learned that Camp Pendleton was home to more Marines and sailors that were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan than any other one base or station. And so I just knew that I had to put this together in a nice tribute book for family and friends and fellow Marines. And luckily, um, People have really enjoyed it. The history of Camp Pendleton so long before it was a Marine Corps base, there was uh, it was a working cattle ranch. And in, in, in the history of California, going back you know hundreds and thousands of years, where it was um, home to Native Americans here as well. And so I've cataloged that in the book. And so it's just a tribute book, and really the capstone project for me of my life, a capstone project that incorporated photography, uh, community relations, storytelling, marketing, uh, engagement with the community. And so I've been so grateful for that. And it just really encapsulates the uh, sharing, the courage it takes to serve and right here at Camp, uh, Camp Pendleton. So thank you for noting that. Heroes live here. You can find it, uh, more photos and more stories of our Marines and sailors at heroeslivehere.com. But it's been challenging. I didn't know what to expect, but I learned a lot in the past 12 months about um, how to do time management, uh, working at night and on the weekends and finding pockets of time to go out and do a speaking engagement or a book signing or a podcast media interviews. So, but I tell people, if you think you have a story or you want to research another story, there there are so many stories out there for people who are aspiring to be an author. Uh, it opens up doors and it positions yourself to be an expert in a particular topic. And I kind of self publish this book. So I didn't have a big print house or um, a backer, but I didn't really go that angle because I really wanted to keep creative control over the content of the book. It's 200 pages filled with more, more than about 150 photos. So it's a coffee table book, high quality paper, and all these things I had to learn like trim size and margins and cover design and uh, interior. Uh, and so the The process was amazing. I had a great layout team and um, a cover designer and really learned a lot about the book publishing industry.
0: Do you have any more sort of plans to do in the future? I probably would love to
1: explore the options for another book. But right now, I am just riding this wave of um, it's amazing that people actually really want to hear more about the history and, and talk about my experience. So, I was booked solid for 2022 with speaking engagements and um, I'll be picking up that more here um, in the few next few weeks um, after I had foot surgery. So I'm healing from that. Once I'm able to walk again, I'll be back on the book signing and book tour, but uh, it's just been amazing. But yes, I do have some ideas, um, you know, in the future for future books. Now that I know the process, I feel like it would be a lot easier and um, able to put together a series or some sort of multimedia project. I've had a lot of opportunities. People have asked if they can we can turn this book into a video segment with some tributes and then I want to make the audio book. And so kind of slow rolling those projects and being able to really fully tell the story that is in the book. I haven't really even scratched the surface of making more multimedia uh, available to tell those important stories of the people that i chronicled in the book that uh, and all the history that goes along with Camp Pendleton.
0: And for people that want to find more information about you online, where can they do that?
1: Well, you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Amy Forsyth. I'm on Instagram as well and Twitter um, and also go to my website. Uh, www.heroeslivehere.com, where you can find more information about the book, my speaking engagements, and um, connect with me there through LinkedIn as well. So I love to connect on LinkedIn and really um, stay connected. And in case I'm ever writing a story or doing more research, I found that's a great network of people to um, highlight. If you're an expert in a certain field and you want to be a resource for me, that would be great. And I love to be a cheerleader for other people and all their endeavors.
0: Yeah, I made a LinkedIn just to share the podcast. And that's how I connected with you. But I didn't realize what a great connection tool it would be. I found a few podcast guests that way.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. And, you know, was, and for military people, they think, well, I don't need a LinkedIn account because I'm in the military, but it actually helps connect for future duty stations or assignments or really the folks that we served with many years ago, maybe just reconnecting with them or seeing how people are moving on um, a- after their service and what jobs they're taking and being able to be a reference or offer a referral for someone and so sharing content as well, like like what projects were work what I'm working on or something so um, LinkedIn is my go-to platform but I'm also on Instagram as well
0: and so my final question that I ask everyone what advice would you give to women looking to join the military and in this case specifically combat correspondent or public affairs
1: the advice I would give to women looking at joining the military is I would think really understand yourself first what are your interests What are your tolerance levels? What do you want to get out of this life? If you want to challenge, go for it. If you want to travel, go for it. If you want to meet awesome and amazing people, go for it. There's reserve opportunities out there. There's all kinds of ways that you can serve if you wanted to enlist or become an officer Stay in the reserves or reaffiliate, what we call, like if you've been out for many years and you want to come back in, there's even b- bonuses out there, especially in the US, they'll offer bonuses and to reclassify into a new emerging job. If I could do it all over again, though, I might come in and do, uh, be in the UAV, um, aerial drone operator type thing. I just find it fascinating. And so there's so many great opportunities out there for women. So don't be afraid to step up and step out of your comfort zone. If you want to maximize your own potential and maximize this life that you only have one try. However, if you're not sure it's, Definitely not for everyone. Being in the military takes kind of a certain quality and certain tolerance levels for things uh, that aren't perfect. I would say the acquisition process is not perfect. The human resources is, no, is not perfect. It's um, chaotic. It's unbalanced at times. It's, it doesn't seem fair at times. And there's extremes, there's extreme momentum. And then there's some downtime. Um, There's going to be people you don't like and who don't like you. Or uh, if you can tolerate all that, it really is probably one of the best places to be right now for young women. There's many opportunities to travel and um, prove yourself what you can do. Uh, I would say, you know, a career and family are all in the cards later down the down the road. But if you're looking to really get something out of this life and being able to make a difference and an impact on other people, service before self. And uh, that's what I would tell people is that it's not for everyone. Do some research before jumping in or just jump in and say, let it let's roll and Let it happen and uh, just kind of go for it.
0: Awesome. That's so great. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm so glad that we finally got to nail down a time and connect.
1: I know. Keep up the great work. I just think this podcast is amazing. Your uh, guests are amazing. You're really capturing the spirit of what it means to be in the military as a woman and shoot like a girl the the metaphor for that is you know don't let anybody steal your thunder because you're a woman and people would say oh you shoot like like a girl or you pretty good for a girl has always been the analogy you know sh- the at marksmanship and photography, everything is sort of a standard for a girl. And we want to change that, right? We want to say just, you're good at marksmanship, period. You're good at photography, period. And so this podcast is exactly that. You're good as a podcaster. And this podcast is bringing so much to those out there interested in the military and the women who have already kind of been there, done that and opening doors for other women.
0: Yeah, I can't remember if it was um a cartoon or it was something that I was reading about and someone's, you know, a girl is playing basketball and the guy said, Oh, you shoot like a girl. And she was like, Oh, you know, thanks. If you practice really hard, then maybe someday you can too.
1: Yes. And, you know, that analogy is still used, but it's a pejorative, it's a it's like for a girl. And it's like, no, just as is, you're good at this. And so it's up to all of us to um, check that language and make sure that we're just giving compliments without it being a, a gender specific. And so um, I the guests you have have been top notch. So keep it up. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app.